Welcome to the podcast that showcases the rural town careers and opportunities you need to know about. Welcome to What's Your 9 to 5. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today is a very special episode. Today is all about COVID-19. COVID in Grey Bruce has not been as bad as other places, but it sure is still an issue. It's a worldwide pandemic after all. Everybody knows about the infamous two-week March break that turned just just a little bit longer than that, right, Chris? Just just a little bit. Just a wee bit. As of September 29th, the largest number of cases in Ontario was at 700 new cases in one day. COVID-19 has not been easy for most people, especially not the healthcare workers as well. 29 healthcare workers in Grey Bruce have been infected, and so many have struggled in Canada. This has been, this has affected everybody after all. And this episode is just going to get us a lot more information. We're going to learn a lot. It's going to hopefully help everybody out feel a little bit better about COVID around here in Grey Bruce. So today we are very lucky to have someone from Grey Bruce Public Health joining us to answer some of our questions about COVID-19. We have Dr. Ara, the Medical Officer of Health and Board of Health of, for Grey Bruce. And we also have Lori Wilder on, who is the Director of education for the Blue Water District School Board, and it's going to be a good one. We're going to learn a lot about how COVID's being taken care of in the schools and the school board, and how the um, and how the medical officer of health is dealing with it as well. So, let's get right into it. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, Thank you for having me. What we do is, uh, in general, keep healthy people healthy in public health, and that by ensuring uh, the the environment is is supportive uh, of the health of of the public and the community, infectious disease under control, injury is prevented, and one of the functions is in the management of emergencies related to health. So for the past year or past seven months, uh, COVID-19 has been the, you know, the pandemic of the highest caliber, and public health is central to the management of the emergencies of this type, infectious disease emergencies. So um, in, in that regard, we, again, try to keep people healthy, uh, prevent uh, the disease, prevent people ending up in hospitals or needing health care. And that could be done in many ways, uh, whether it's the operations itself to contact trace cases or the communication to the public to ensure they have the tools and the information that will make them able to make decisions to protect themselves, their families, and the community. So you mentioned it, this being the pandemic of the highest caliber, which I think we're all pretty much aware of, but why has COVID-19 taken such a long time to fight slash prepare against? Like, why is it different from other past pandemics and illnesses? Well, each... That's a really core question. Each pathogen would have characteristics that would uh, define how it's going to behave as a pan, if, as an outbreak. Uh, the the uh, pandemic usually would have uh, a pathogen that's novel, new to the community, new to humans. So there is no uh, pre-built uh, immunity against it. Uh, comparison might help. The flu, for example, or measles. Measles, a person would get the measles uh, virus and have immunity for the rest of their life. And if they get the vaccine, usually they would have immunity for for the rest of their life in general. Uh, The flu, uh, if, if a person 
lived long enough, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, 80 years, they're going to be exposed to the flu vaccine on uh, frequently, maybe every few years they're going to get the flu. Although the new virus is a bit different from the previous virus because there is always mutation and shift and drift. These are two types of changes in the virus, uh, the flu virus. Although uh, the, the uh, uh, new virus is, is novel in a way, however, the immunity uh, crosses over to protect the person. With coronavirus, there is no uh, likes to it before. So people who have never been exposed to it, there's no immunity to it, there's no vaccine. That makes the entire population predisposed to it. As a, as a virus itself does not really cause severe disease, actually it's, it's mild in general for most people and severe for people who with comorbidities. Uh, and and uh, the, the, because it is mild, that's another characteristics of it that would allow it to go further. If you contrast it to SARS, that's the second point I wanted to mention. Uh, SARS is a severe disease. It, it uh, probably um, uh, kills a high proportion of people who are infected in it. So the opportunity for the virus to spread to other people is limited because as soon as the person is sick, they're very sick, then they might die. And if, even if they didn't die, they stay home because they're very sick or in the hospital. With a mild disease like COVID, the opportunity for spread is higher because some people are asymptomatic and there's evidence that around 40% have no symptoms or mild, mild symptoms, if any. And that allows it to spread more, although it's not um, severe, similar to, to uh, uh, SARS, it is actually more efficient in transmission. So these are the main two reasons why the pandemic or COVID became a pandemic. Number one, there's no immunity to it. Second, the people who got sick are still able to go out and about and transmit it. Wow, that's so scary to hear. Do you think there will ever be a day where everything goes back to normal or the way it was before? Yeah, I have no doubt we will go back to uh, normal life. Humanities have uh, managed to survive many of these pandemics. Uh, you know, the last one of similar caliber is the Spanish flu 1918. It claimed 75 million people. And it has the same characteristics of transmission uh, to COVID, uh, almost identical, are, are not of two to three, uh, which is the number of people who are going to be infected by each case. Each case is going to infect two to three people. So there is always an exponential growth if there is no measure in place to stop it. Uh, and after uh, that pandemic, people, you know, the humanity went back to uh, what we consider normal. Uh, so what we might see COVID down the road is very similar to common cold. People would get it every now and then, and they will, you know, have sniffles or have a pneumonia if it's severe. But in, in general, it's going to be just an added respiratory disease. That will happen when we reach the herd immunity. 70% of the public has immunity to it. And, and that's, that's one of the characteristics of, of the transmission for this disease. Hopefully, we'll reach that through a vaccine, not through uh, people getting infected. Do you think that mask will be continued to wear, though? Do you think that's going to be a trend that sticks around a little bit longer? 
Well, a mask as a social habit might be more common. You know, uh, in, in some countries, in Asian countries, it's the norm for a person to wear a mask if they're feeling cold and it's not socially awkward. In our community, mask has not been the norm. After this, there might be more inclination for people who have a common cold or or any respiratory disease actually to wear a mask and go to a grocery store because it became a bit more normal. Do we need it to, to wear it, all of us, at all times down the road? I suspect not. Is it a bit more normalized? Uh, I suspect it will be. Uh, the answer would be yes. I like that. I like that idea. I hope that that would I hope that that would come into place because that could definitely help a lot more people just in general with all colds and sicknesses. I agree with you. You know, like historically before COVID, you know, one of us gets sick, but not sick enough. And you need to go get uh, something grocery store. It wouldn't occur to me to wear a mask because I know people are going to be just, uh, you know, giving you the eye. Like, well, what is going on? Uh, why are you wearing a mask? Do you have TB or some infectious disease? Now, nowadays and going forward, probably it will be the norm. Yes. Um, and like talking about masks, it seems like you, you go on Facebook and you almost see a lot of people are very split on, you know, so a lot of people say like, we really got to wear masks and like, it's the right thing to do. And then other people have their own opinion saying we don't need masks and that this is all, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of hoopla. So how important are masks to fighting COVID-19? That's a subject that can take a couple hours to talk about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you see, at the end of the day, wearing a mask is not a political statement. It shouldn't be a, a position that a person would take you know, against the government or against the establishment. It's a, truly a tool to reduce risk of transmission that might help people. How effective it is, according to the studies, probably the German studies are the most robust observational studies. It's about 5 to 12% protection if it's used in a public setting. So that's different from a hospital or a clinical setting where it's it's very effective there just because people wear it, they don it and of it in appropriate way without touching their face, without increasing the risk of transmission. For the public in general, it's between five to 12, so roughly 10. That is to say, in Grey Bruce, if we're gonna see 100 cases between now and New Year's, if we wear all of us masks, we're gonna get 95 or 90, that's 10%. And if we don't wear it, we're gonna get 100. So it's all to prevent 10%. It seems a small percentage. However, on a population level, on a province level, 10% of cases is a lot. So it's definitely an effective uh, measure that should be used. And, and to give you just, sometimes we better understand things if we compare them to other things. So in the hierarchy of control, uh, of measures, which one is more effective, comes first is the uh, physical distance, two meters or more. And there is nothing magical about the number of two meters. The furthest, the less risk there is. Under it comes engineering controls. One example would be shields in a bank or in a grocery store. And under it comes administrative control, policies that are written for a workplace. Let's say we clean the school at night. So the uh, people doing the cleaning are not interacting with the school staff and students. So that's a policy that reduces risk based on time separation. And bottom that list is the use of masks. It's actually the weakest. However, again, because it's easy to use, it could be used on population level 
it, it has definitely efficacy. And to, to be complete, uh, the reference for this data is from Johns Hopkins Medical School uh, reopening plans or safe reopening plans for uh, specifically for COVID. Uh, John Hopkins is one of the most credible medical schools in the United States in the world, and they have as credible of a public health uh, school. Um, having said all this, you know, people wonder, like, why did this recommendation about the mask change? And truly, they didn't. Uh, to, to use a mask, there, there should be certain criteria need to be met. And the most important two are the community spread, and the second criterion is the uh, interaction among people. So if you go chronologically to January and February, I spoke to the Board of Health and the county and said, let's, let's dust off our pandemic plans, response plans. And at that time, uh, there's no community spread. So there's no point of people in Gray and Bruce in, in February and January wearing masks. It's just, well, it's gonna be futile. Uh, you fast forward to March and April, there is community spread. However, there isn't interaction among people. Everybody's sitting in their home, complete lock-in. Uh, so it will be, again, futile if I sit alone on my couch in my house wearing a mask. I'm not going to infect anybody anyways. It, it, using masks in pandemics becomes useful in the stages of reopening, and more specifically the third stage where high activity, high risk activity are, are uh, being opened, whether it's a movie theater or bars. And that's where we issue the recommendation. And to my delight, the province has actually uh, many parts of the province considered bylaws and MOH orders to mandate masks. And recently, as you uh, know, the, with the increased number of cases, that's what where mask use becomes more useful. I probably labored this answer a bit more, but I think it's worth uh, mentioning. It was. Thank you very much. That was really helpful. Um, so... I know, like, out of all the other counties in Ontario, we have actually done, um, we've been, the Great Bruce has actually been, I've heard, has been kind of at the top for um, doing a really good job at fighting the virus, fighting this uh, pandemic. Um, so your job must have gotten a lot busier in March when everything kind of happened. So what was, that, what was that like? Like, how much has your job changed since March? Drastically. Uh, changed. We started working in January, actually, mid-January. Uh, it was clear this is going to be a pandemic. The characteristics of the virus, uh, I had no doubt it will be at some point in Grey Bruce. So we started working as early at that time, uh, working with the counties, with other partners, EMS. Uh, in March, definitely there was uh, an increase in the demand on our work hours and the team I actually worked around 14 to 16 hours per day, nonstop, no weekend, wow. uh, until mid-July, I would say. Then wow. slowed down. Then in, with the reopening of schools, there's uh, also the part of, you know, you need to manage not just the number of cases. You need to manage with every action we, we have in public health. We need to manage communication to different stakeholders, to the public. So it, it has uh, been busy again after September. Oh my goodness. Well, good job. Thank you for doing all that. Oh my gosh. Oh, uh, my pleasure. Glad to be of service. It's good to be to, to be in demand to make difference in the community. 
And and I know I have I am very privileged to have a team that's burning the candle at both ends nonstop as well. So with all that stuff, what is the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome during this pandemic? Well, with putting number one, one it's difficult. There are many many challenges, but I can probably if if I may separate it into personal challenge and professional challenge. The professional challenge is to ensure the staff are safe. You know, when people work many hours, day after day, uh, for weeks, and with no, uh, you know, clear end in sight, there is, there is stress on every individual. So I, I made the effort to go around on daily basis since day one to ensure people are taking breaks, taking a pause, um, having, uh, you know, taking care of themselves, and it, it's it, it gets. Uh, more difficult as we go, you know, the burnout, that, that's something that we need to ensure the staff is safe and able to provide, you know, if they're not, if they're not able to take care of themselves, they will not be able to take care of the community. So far, we've been successful in ensuring that balance. On a personal level, my, you know, I can do this for a year or two, except for one regret, uh, my three-year-old daughter is missing out on her daddy. So that has been, again, a challenge that I had to make uh, some adjustments. So I would leave work around five and I'll spend three hours with her. Then when I put her to bed, I'll go back to, to work between eight to 12. Uh, that's when things were really busy. Now, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's that busy, sometimes it's not, but at least I managed to ensure some time with my daughter uh, is protected and my family as well, my wife. Well, thank you so much for making those sacrifices that like you got like you and your guy and your uh, your team up there. It's funny. Every I go down, it's like I've uh, uh, been talking to my friends who are down in London, actually. And I uh, it's fun because I get to brag about I get to brag about how well, you know, we're doing up here in Great Bruce with everything. And uh, I just yeah, thank you so much because I know how much all you guys have to sacrifice because like it, it was kind of weird. Everything stopped in March except for. uh you know, hospitals and everything. You guys, like your workload almost just went up who knows how much, like a, a, a ton. So um, thank you so much for, for all your guys' sacrifices and um, and for you guys' time trying to fight this because it must it, it must be confusing on a daily basis, day by day. It, uh, it's, it's always something new. So thank you so much. We're glad to be, we're glad to be of service, but, you know, truly... I think of the pillars of the response or the success in the response in Great Bruce, and it's not one person, it's not one team. Uh, there are probably five pillars. If, if you wish, I can go into more details in them. Uh, one, one of them is the heavy lifting is the public, the community, people doing the right thing to protect themselves, their family, and the rest of the community, and the most vulnerable of us, the older adults, people with comorbidities. Uh, everybody had, had sacrificed. You know, locking in is not easy. Um, the the healthcare system has been our insurance policy. Healthcare system is hospitals and uh, you know primary care, family physicians. Uh, truly, we don't have cases in Cyprus or minimal cases, no hospital cases, and only two for minor hospitalization that was not really uh, much. So. From that point of view, the healthcare system has been ready, and I thank them for their readiness. Uh, testing has been 
you know, people who, who are in the assessment center are, again, working around the hour to keep up with recent demands, and they're putting themselves in harm's way. No, no question I, that that's tremendous effort. The, the uh, other pillars are of, uh, apologies for that. The other pillars for the successful response in Grey Bruce is one, the public, two, public health recommendation and communication. I, I do believe our team did a really good job keeping everybody uh, supplied with the information they need. Local journalism, your work today, I don't know if you realize it or not, is saving lives. I have no doubt of my in my mind that people, journalists, local media that has worked on COVID in the past seven months have saved lives and continue to do so. Uh, and, and you know, you can you know it more than anybody else. The media could be partisan sometimes. It could get in the nooks and crannies of issues that are different from what's essential. Locally, we found that the media has been focusing on COVID and providing. Uh, information and they're asking the hard questions to provide the information to the public in timely way. Uh, the other two pillars are local political commitment to health and, and local political leaders played uh, a tremendous role in this response. Uh, and the final pillar is, is uh, local uh, community businesses, whether it is small business or, or big business as Chapman's Ice Cream, Bruce Bauer. They have donated masks to the first responders. They have provided hand sanitizer. They have done amazing work, including uh, the field hospitals to be ready to support the, that the hospital capacity if it's challenged. Now, all in all, it's, you know, thank you for, for your remarks that you're thanking us. However, it's really not a one team's effort, rather the collective of the community getting together to ensure everybody's safe. Yeah, go Gray Bruce, go <laughs> us. Were there very many plans in place for a pandemic before COVID-19? Yeah, there, there has been, definitely. Every organization in general has a, a plan for a flu pandemic because that's the most type of pandemic. It's not of this caliber usually. However, we, we've seen a couple. Every 10 years, you would find a smaller pandemic. Uh, so there are plans. Uh, public health, we, we run these emergency exercises on an annual basis. This could be novel to many people, but truly it's bread and butter to us because the management of the flu is very similar to the management of, of any respiratory outbreak, including COVID. Uh, so we, we do have these emergency exercises on an annual basis. Myself, as a specialist in public health preventative medicine, it's a training of five years, similar to surgery. And we are trained on many things uh, related to public health function. One of them is emergency planning, which in, entails training uh, to, to talk to the media, how to convey a message to the public, uh, how to um, be a good advisor to decision makers, you know, the parliament or the county council, how to pass a bylaw, how to, how to support, not to pass a bylaw, how to support and advise the council as a medical advisor. Um, environmental health is another part of it. And the emergency planning is, is truly uh, a subject in public health that is uh, deep and wide. And uh, there, there's required expertise to actually to master it. So again, this could be novel to many people, to a specialist in public health, to a health unit, it's a bread and butter. 
So what are the chances we have another lockdown like we did in March? Like what, what would you say are the chances? Not high chances. It's probably unlikely to go back to full lockdown. And the reason uh, we already have experience how to manage this virus. You know, if you go back to March and April, we're putting on all these measures in place and we don't know how big the wave is going to be, how, the, uh, how big the flood is going to be. Uh, now we know that we brought it to complete halt when we had the lock-in for, you know, five, six weeks in March and April. We had full control over it. We continue to maintain full control in stage one, two, and three. Um, so we've seen sporadic cases, but we didn't see uh, outbreaks of, you know, 50 people or 100 people. Um, and, and that was expected. You know, I spoke about it in April, May, June, July, that I have no doubt we're going to see sporadic cases. But if we do our job right, we're not going to see outbreaks or clusters. And by we, I mean the collective we, the public health and the public, and the five pillars I, I mentioned. Um, so during this experience, the lock-in, the mitigation period, then the reopening stages, we learned about this virus and the the evidence comes from CDC Atlanta, Center of Disease Control, that if we implement five measures in place and uh, there is enough compliance from the public and buy-in, there will be no need for a shutdown. Uh, these five measures are the three W's. I, I named them the three W's. Wash your hands frequently. Watch your distance two meters or more. Uh, wear a mask correctly, and the last two are to do things outdoors whenever possible instead of indoors, and to avoid, avoid crowds. If the public or the majority of the public follows these recommendations, there will be no need for uh, lock-in. So I know we've been mostly talking about COVID here, but let's talk about you a little bit more. So what exactly is your job, like usually, like not when it's a pandemic? Well, it's, it's the best job in the world. I'm biased, obviously, but it, it is. Uh, every day is a bit different in public health. My responsibility is split um, into two roles. The CEO of the health unit, uh, the chief executive officer, which is a management position, which uh, to ensure that the, the managers and the staff are supported and there's enough structure in the health unit and process to provide services to the public. So that's a management job and um, I like it, I enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, working with people is, is not an easy task and it's a humbling task because you learn as you, as you go, no matter how much training you had, I, and I had training of five years longitudinally about uh, in public health, how to manage uh, teams. However, you know, you always learn from the team you work uh, with. So that's the first part of, of, of the task or, or the role. And I can go in depth if you wish in what functions there are in it. The second part is the MOH, the Medical Officer of Health. And, and that's also as exciting. It's, uh, you're dealing with issues related to environmental health, uh, water spills, um, water quality, air quality, infectious disease, rabies, salmonella outbreaks. Every day is, is a bit different vaccination injury prevention, advocacy to uh, local uh, political leaders, to provincial political leaders. It, it is, uh, it's a very uh, 
diverse uh, role and uh, and it's not easy by any means that's outside of emergency in emergency it, you know all these things are intensified and the pace becomes uh, way faster uh, however the training a person would have in public health preventative medicine would allow a person not just competency in the role or rather mastery uh, if if done well so what schooling do you have so my training was in Northern Ontario School of Medicine, and um, it's it's unique in a way that it's a it's a, a training that's uh, implemented in different locations. So Sudbury and Thunder Bay are the two locations for the university. However, we do rotations, and rotation is a term we use in residency training of usually a few months, three to six months in different locations to, to get training. Uh, I had a training in Toronto, um, in Public Health Ontario, that's a provincial level, and in Toronto Public Health, which is the health unit in Toronto. I had training in five other health units, uh, different uh, locations in, in Ontario. One of them is Grey Bruce, where I spent uh, about four months with Dr. Hazel Lynn, great mentor and colleague and, and a friend. Um, and uh, I did international rotations with World Health Organization in Denmark, um, the European office. Um, so again, that training through Northern Ontario School of Medicine allows for flexibility in choosing where your learning is going to be best able to provide you with the knowledge you need to do the job down the road. And unique thing about uh, the uh, program in NOSM, Northern Ontario School of Medicine, is the fact that it is uh, located in in big cities, Sudbury and Thunder Bay, but at the same time deals with rural areas. So the the practice of public health is a bit different in both. And I I chose Nassim intentionally to have uh, expertise in both. And that really fits well with Gray Bruce Health Unit because uh, um, the health unit itself is made of 170,000 people. The health unit is the jurisdiction, it's not the building itself. So there are big communities on sound and others, and there are smaller communities and rural nature to it. That is that is so cool. And uh, we just had a couple more questions left for you here. Um, so we've been asking this question to every guest that comes on the show since the show is about um, career opportunities for youth that are happening in this area that um, some people don't know about. And we, we've been talking about how a lot of high school kids nowadays have a lot of pressure on themselves to go off to university and college right away or do something else. Um, so if you could go back in time and talk to your 16-year-old self, um, what would you say to him? That's a tough question. It's, yeah, it's a, a tricky question. Yeah. If, if uh, my opinion is going to be influencing somebody's trajectory, Without a doubt, I would uh, tell myself that I need to do something I really enjoy and like. Many people could be distracted with different opinions or different uh, trajectories to career, and whether it's uh, you know the type of university you're going to go to or the type of uh, level of income a person would have, I do believe the core of successful career, regardless of the field, is for a person to do something they genuinely like. Many of us would do jobs that we didn't like uh, in, in our life, and it would be 
um, not a meaningful career or life if a person is going to be just doing the job for the sake of doing job and getting income. Uh, regardless of the field, if you like something, you can go up and high as far as you can uh, if, if you follow that, uh, to me, uh, a really good principle. Uh, thank you. So that's a great answer. I think a lot of kids are going to take a lot from that. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Aro. We really appreciate it. I think a lot of kids are going to get a lot of good information out of this. I know I certainly did, so we really appreciate it. Chris and Brooke, thank you so much for your time and interest in this. And I genuinely say this to every journalist I speak with. Take a pause every, you know, like every day, couple of minutes. Just uh, intern internalize the fact that your work today is actually saving lives. I have no doubt in my mind. Thank you so much for your interest in the subject. Oh, thank you. It means a lot. Thank you. Take care. Thank you Take very care. much. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, and other weird, dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So, grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you. Okay, hello everybody. Today, we're getting the inside scoop on our local school district's outlook on COVID-19 and how it's affecting our schools in Grey Bruce. For our second guest of the day, we have the new Director of Education, Lori, Lori Wilder. Tell us about yourself, Lori. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for this opportunity to join me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been with our board, Blue Water District School Board, um, for over 30 years, so I am uh, very loyal and proud of our board and happy to be the director of education. I uh, started out as a secondary teacher in our board over in Meaford at Georgian Bay uh, Secondary School at the time. And then I had an opportunity to be vice principal at OSCVI and West Hill. And then I moved to the board office in a student success role and superintendent and now director. So I, I just love living up in this area. I have two wonderful children who were raised here and went to our schools and um, they're, they're certainly, they're gone now um, out of the area, but um, I'm just uh, happy to be the director of education for Blue Water District School Board. Yeah, though that's, that's awesome. And um, it must be uh, a, a lot of work like, to get into right now because of course, with everything that's been happening with, with COVID, it must be a whole new, a whole new ball game, a whole new challenge for you. So, um, so how has like you and the board in the schools like had to adapt to COVID-19 what what was like all the what was the process and having to deal with all that when everything went down well um for sure I mean it was like a March break like no other as we had to uh, shift into online learning for the spring time and of course we all were very hopeful that we would be allowed back into our schools uh, sooner rather than later, and time went by, and then we realized that um, certainly we wouldn't be back until September, and we were very thankful that we were, but we did uh, spend most of the summer, our senior team spent most of the summer um, preparing for what it would look like, because we weren't sure at that time, the ministry had said we had to prepare for three models of delivery, 
So um, we up in Gray and Bruce, because we have um, a lower number of uh, incidences of COVID, thank goodness, yeah. we were allowed to have the uh, full return back to school. Uh, so we've been doing that in our elementary and secondary schools, and it's uh, it's gone very well so far. But of course, our major focus has been on the health and safety protocols within our buildings. So that's been something that we've made sure we've um, paid great attention to. So how many schools are actually in Blue Water? Well, we have quite a combination of schools. Um, we have um, summer kindergarten to grade 12. We have... Um, we have grade nine to 12 schools, we have K to two schools. So um, we have um, just in terms of a, a, a range, we have about 48 schools, but that some of them have the MIDENT numbers, which just are attached to elementary and secondary. Um, we also have a remote school that we've just had to develop due to COVID. So our remote school right now is our largest school in the district. It has uh, just under 1800 students. Wow. And so that is for the students who are doing the online learning. I know. So that has that has really been a lot of work to getting that set up and running to support the students who are doing the online learning. That is that's so cool. I had no idea about that remote school. That 1800 kids. Wow, that's that's a good amount of kids. Yeah, especially for the school board. Um so in your opinion, do you think it was a uh, a good decision to open up schools like local schools in in Blue Water and, and in the uh, Gray Bruce counties? I absolutely do. Um, we are hearing numerous stories of uh, students and how happy they are to be back uh, learning within the school setting, supported by their peers. It's just, I believe, for the students' well-being and mental health, it's been a, a wonderful decision. Uh, it's just, for some, it's just really, really necessary as well in this area. We know many of our families, the parents and guardians, they do need to work. So this gives them the option too, when their children are back to school, it gives them the option to go and to be able to um, engage in their workplace as well. So I think overall for the mental health and well-being of um, our students and their families and our staff, uh, that it's been the right decision to have us back uh, to face-to-face -face learning while we still honor those families who have chosen the remote, remote learning option. I know in some other school boards that they've been doing uh, sort of mix of online and in-person. Like I know over in Mount Forest, some of their schools are doing, uh, they do morning, a group of kids go in the morning and then they work from home the rest of the day and then they alternate every other day or every other week, sorry. Um, how come Blue Water chose all the way back in and not a mix of one of the other styles? It was actually chosen for us by the ministry and it was based on the... Uh, the incidence of COVID within Bruce and Gray County. So we were deemed to be a board that could go back full time. Um, it, it was a conventional return, they called it. Other boards who have higher rates um, of incidence of COVID, they would be back into an adapted model. And I think that's what you're describing. So, uh, and that would be for secondary. So you would have them in for half a day and then they would go for half a day and alternate as you described. So we were not um, obligated or asked to do that. Um, what we have done though, to reduce the number of contacts that a student may have, they have one course, uh, this is at secondary level, they have one course uh, that they take all week long 
and then they switch to a second course the second week. They are now right now only working on two courses until uh, middle of November, and that's called a quadmester system. So that means during one week, they're only supposed to one group of students and that they call that a cohort. And then the second week, it's a new cohort, but their, their contacts are very limited with that model. So when doing this, with we're, we're trying to reduce cohorts and do one class a week, I understand they've got had to hire a lot more teachers. Like, is that correct? We had to hire more teachers to support the remote learning school um, because, well, originally what we were attempting to do was to keep the numbers the same um, in the face-to-face that were already there, but the we found out though that we couldn't really sustain that mostly from a human resources uh, standpoint. There aren't enough teachers out there available to us to uh, staff all of our face-to-face schools as we, ha- as we have been and all of our remote school as well. So what we've had to do at the elementary level, we're working on it right now. We're working on a reorganization where we will be redistributing staffing from our face-to-face into our remote learning school. A reorganization like this happens every year in elementary schools just to right size the numbers based on the number of children in the classrooms. But this year, of course, it will be more complex because of the remote school. So we'll have to um, take or pull more teachers out of the face-to-face to support the remote learning. Secondary, we are looking at some options too, because at present, uh, our secondary face-to-face schools are overstaffed as well. So we will need to look at some other methods to ensure that our remote-to-remote schools are also supported um, equitably from a staffing perspective. My, my brother's actually doing that. But the issue with that that I'm just wondering is how come they're taking them from in class when I would most would argue that they would need it more like certain teachers because they're having a lot of exposure. Like I'm confused about why I know elementary schools, they have like seven or eight teachers. How come they're not cutting it down to only interacting with two or three teachers a day? So we actually, um, and that's a really good question. We have to ensure uh, that our classrooms meet provincial class size requirements uh, within timelines set by the Ministry of Education. So we have to do that for both our face-to-face and our own learning. Uh, so it's important that we, we've done that. Our, uh, as reference to, we don't have enough, if we didn't do this, we actually wouldn't have enough teachers to support all of the actual classrooms that we have um, active right now. So um, it, it is a good question. The additional provincial funding we did receive and the board's available reserve funds are just simply not enough to support staffing costs throughout the year. And as I already mentioned, we are facing a shortage of occasional teachers. And this is an issue faced by many boards across the province. Uh, So that's why we need to move forward with the reorganization in the elementary schools. So I know with COVID, everything kind of, you have to kind of take it almost one week at a time because things change so, so rapidly. So with that, like, I know the future is kind of hard to predict, but do you ever see like an, a second lockdown happening in this area or, or like, do you see like the school year, like kind of going the way it is all the way till the end of June? I would say, um, and it, it, you're, you're sorry, it's so hard to predict. Yeah. Um, 
Gray and Bruce County, under the leadership of Dr. Ara, they've done a fantastic job of, um, you know, minimizing the number of COVID cases that we have here. In fact, there was an article that was written, um, and and Gray Bruce got a real shout out or kudos in that regard. So what I what I am seeing is that provincially, the premier is looking at regional. Uh, it, they're looking at this regionally. So, for example, Ottawa, Peel, and Toronto areas just were um, had some more regulations uh, put on them just because of their high number of cases. So my prediction is if we continue here in Great Bruce like we are, we will not be shutting down schools again. And, I mean, personally, that would be my hope that we don't revert to having to do that. Of course, if the, the health and safety of people uh, that's warranted and needs to happen, we will make sure that our students are supported again from a remote learning option. But um, I'm just hopeful that we can get through this year and, and that they get a, a vaccine and uh, we can move, move forward with regular school. That's very true. Um, so back to talking about teachers. Um, I know that there was like, you're talking about staffing struggles and I understand that. And I know that throughout this pandemic, they've been reaching out more towards the older retired teachers. And do you agree with the decision to try and to bring back older retired teachers when they're the ones most susceptible to coronavirus? Arguably, arguably the most susceptible. Um, I, what I agree with is that there is a need provincially for qualified teachers in our schools. And we aren't provincially, we're struggling, it seems, to be able to staff our schools. So everybody would definitely have to make a personal choice uh, whether they would be prepared to do so if it was a retired teacher, and they certainly do. Um, they, they can say yes or no if called to do so. So um, I know that the ministry is attempting to uh, work with um, trying to establish, like right now, retired teachers can only teach a maximum of 50 days in a year. And the government I know is attempting to uh, lift that limit to allow teachers who wish to do so to stay in um, a position longer. So um, I, I do agree. It's personal choice if they want to do it, but we do need the people. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, so I think, uh, so I'm 20, so Brooke, my co-host here, Brooklyn, she is, she's in high school, she's 16. I'm, I'm 24, so I'm going to have more of the questions about what's actually going on in the schools because I know a lot of people my age and even older kind of have their questions. So say a student kind of has a couple symptoms of COVID-19 in the classroom. How would a teacher go about that with like how and like deal with that? Do they like kick them right out or what kind of happens with that? Um, it, it is interesting. There is um, a provincial screening tool that has, uh, it's been morphed and changed over time and it just went through another change most recently. So it's a self-assessment tool that we ask all families uh, to have their children do before they attend school. We ask um, them to look and, and it's awesome. It gives you kind of the green light, red light, whether you can come or not come into school. If a child comes to school and there is um, a symptom uh, that could be COVID related, they would be asked to go home. And then there are certain uh, things like they, if, if the symptom improves within 24 hours uh, and um, they know that it's not COVID related, oftentimes a health practitioner could establish that it's not COVID related. They might have asthma, for example, they can come back. If the symptoms doesn't, don't improve, then they should uh, have a COVID test. 
and uh, to prove that they're negative and or they can self-isolate and stay home for 14 days and then return after that time, assuming the symptoms have um, been replaced. We really, um, the administrators are the ones who would make that call. Uh, a teacher would probably identify it, point it out to administrator, administrator would make that call in terms of if a child needed to go home or not. And um, if, if ever there was um, a positive case, public health are the ones then that would step in and take over in terms of contact tracing and things like that. Okay. And I just have a question. So I know that I've heard, I haven't heard it in depth, but I've heard about um, a couple more controversial rules about family infection and COVID. So if, if um, a family member or sibling or family member feels as though they may have COVID symptoms, they, and they're staying home to self, to, to monitor and everything, that their siblings and family members can still go to school and work, but just have to self-monitor. How is that helping with COVID? Like, is that not risk at risk of spreading if they do have the virus? Well, I'm, I'm really not the medical expert in that regard, and that is not something that the board established at all. That is something that the ministry did establish. Uh, I know that Dr. Era, again, with our local public health, has been very conservative in that regard. And, um, and so the ministry did come out saying that if a sibling or a family member was exposed to a COVID-positive case, um, they could still return, or somebody, I'm sorry, with symptoms not necessarily a COVID positive case, they could return. So that isn't governed by us at all. Um, and I, I mean, it's, uh, if, if to, I know that the ministry had said, if somebody had a symptom, but they were getting better, they could return to school. Dr. Ara himself has said that that's not the case in Bruce and Gray County. So, uh, they, he would want them to be symptom free. So he is being conservative and trying to do his best to um, protect us up in this area. I definitely agree with Dr. R there. I would not want to see someone coming back if they're just getting better, but they could still, I know people can be asymptomatic and still have the virus. So, so it must be, uh, it must be kind of confusing for you guys because you probably get a lot of people kind of complaining about COVID stuff to you guys. And it's kind of like some stuff you guys handle, but some other stuff, you know, the Ministry of Health kind of has to handle. So has that kind of been a frustrating process or like a, a probably a bit of a confusing one to kind of like differentiate the, the two different um, kind of jobs and what each ministry does? That's actually a really good point, Chris, because um, I would say early on in this process, um, it, it was very much the the school boards will be taking the majority of the questions and concerns and people who are upset as they're trying to navigate this system, yeah. even though we didn't make the rules. You are absolutely right. I think slowly people are getting a much better understanding, including the ministry and the provincial medical officials. They're understanding things a little bit better and, and attempting to communicate better. So um, I, I can understand the anxiety and stress that families have been feeling um, but I, I see that that's waning a bit. People, people are um, becoming more aware of the procedures in this regard and the protocols, and uh, that has let off a little bit. Um, do you yourself, or do you have a number or estimate of COVID cases currently in Blue Water Schools? Is that information that you can release at all? or? Oh, absolutely. We, we have zero cases in our schools. We have not had any cases in any of our Blue Water Schools. That's very good to hear. 
Mm-hmm. Go, go Gray Bruce. How about us? Look at that. We're, we are setting, we are setting the bar. Setting the bar I know. I would Ontario. agree. We're so fortunate to live in this beautiful part of the country. I know. It's it's awesome. So um, so the, the name of this podcast is called What's Your 9 to 5? And we talk about pe- different people's careers and jobs in this area. So um, so just just like the, the name of the podcast. So what would like a typical nine to five look like like in your job? Well, it's interesting. I, I would never, ever define my job as nine to five <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. because so much of the work is, is, is it's just continuous, which I absolutely love. But um, in, and the job now is so much different because uh, than it would have been pre-COVID. I, I only did get into this just at the beginning. Well, I began officially um, in uh, the 1st of July. So, but my predecessor, I mean, and predecessors, when I'd watch them in this role, there would be um, many more meetings that they would attend, of course, provincial meetings that would um, happen. So um, the nice part is I'm, I'm here at the board office all days. And it's great because we're doing a lot of planning meetings around certainly um, COVID and uh, what our health and safety protocols need to look like. There are still, we are still continuing though here at the board office with our board meetings with our trustees and committee the whole meetings with our trustees. Uh, I attend other meetings uh, as asked as well. We have lots of things that are going on. We are still, even though we're here at the board office, we are still doing some of our meetings virtually. Uh, depending, because we are trying to keep the number of visitors here uh, to a minimum at the board office, but we have our staff back full time, and um, it's just it's it's a really uh, wonderful role, and I just feel so comfortable in it because Blue Water is home to me, and I have been in this board for so so many years. I know many of the people, and uh, I just have such an appreciation for this school board, for Blue Water District School Board. So you, your job is the director of education, is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. So what schooling did you have to go through to get this position and get your job? So I, um, I have a, of course, a university degree, and then I went to teacher's college. And then after that time, you have to um, have, um, I did my master's degree while uh, working full time. So you have to have a master's degree. And then after that time, you have to be qualified as a superintendent. So I, uh, I did my superintendent qualifications as well. And, uh, and uh, to be eligible to do those kinds of, and your principal qualifications, you had to get other certain qualifications before that. Uh, but it's interesting that I say that. Uh, so then I was eligible, eligible to apply for a directorship. It is interesting though, the ministry did just change that requirement. And so that to be a director of education in Ontario, you no longer have to have a teaching background. Oh, oh wow. I know they just changed that and they called, they changed it and they put it under, they called it the COVID recovery act, which personally, I'm not sure it fits in there, but that's where they put it. And so um, somebody who might, for example, uh, have a business background, they could now apply for a director's position in the province of Ontario if they so um, chose to do so. I just am really, I feel, um, for me, it's just really imperative that I have an education background and that I too was a teacher because that's our core business is teaching students. So without that, I wouldn't have myself felt um, competent or capable enough to do the role of director. 
True. And was this a job you always wanted? Like, was this your goal to get, get to this position? That's a good question. And no, I could never have imagined um, myself or thought of this uh, role. I, I think when I was um, younger, I had thought that uh, a principal would be a, an ultimate goal for me uh, as a, a, well, a teacher, maybe if I'd had um, maybe seven to 10 years in, I thought, well, that would be a good um, role for me as principal. So no, I, I never really thought that. I just can, I love to learn. So I continue to take courses and it just kind of happened. And here I am and thrilled to be here. That's awesome. So, um, Going, so we, we're talking about it on the show um, every episode we ask our guests because um, there's a lot of pressure on high school kids, especially in high school, to because a lot of them don't know if like, hey, do I go off right after grade 12 and go off to university, college, or do you do an apprenticeship? Or And I know there's a lot of pressure on kids on what to do after post-secondary. So if you could go back and talk to 16-year-old you back in high school, what would you, what would you say to her? Well, that's, that's interesting because um, I'm looking at my children right now who are um, 26 and 23, and they're approaching their careers much differently than I did. So I very much, I was uh, very driven. So I went directly from high school to university to teacher's college to work. I think that what I maybe, if, if I were talking to my 16-year-old self, I would consider, I would say, consider taking a year maybe off to travel. Um, just take some time because as you get into this uh, and then you have a family, your responsibilities just uh, continue to grow, it seems. And so I wish perhaps I'd done maybe a little bit more travel and exploration as a younger person. Brooklyn, get on it. Right after, no, I'd love right to after school. <laughs> I'd love Send to you to it. Europe. <laughs> yes. Well, now with COVID, we can't go anywhere anyway, yes, really. True. But um, that, that too shall pass. Yes. Oh, for sure. Do you agree that the COVID precautions that have been done at the school are effective? Like, do you think that we're doing all that we can? Yes, I think our schools are doing a fabulous job and we are uh, meeting the mandate as we're required to do so in terms of the hygiene, hand hygiene and the masking. And they're doing staggered entries and exits. We are cohorting our students. Um, our, our staff and students are wearing personal protective equipment. Um, of course, our, our students are masked from grade four and up, and anybody from kindergarten to grade three, if they choose to wear a mask, they can. So there are a lot of uh, protocols in place that are being followed. And from all accounts, I'm hearing that the students are just, um, just being wonderful in terms of following all those protocols. I, I, they do appear to understand the seriousness of what's going on and how we have to be very proactive and preventative in our actions. And they are doing a wonderful job. I don't really want to like rip on my school or anything, but I mean, I don't know about some of the things I don't feel, I don't feel like staggered entries or exits are followed very well. Oh, I, well, that's interesting. And you know, um, Brooklyn, the other thing I know once, once students leave the school, I, I do understand it seems to be a different case, right? Because people are congregating together and not masking. So we just know that all we can do and uh, have an influence over is while students are in the school. So that's what we're trying to do our best. And, it, and if we can limit um, any kind of spread of this disease, we're trying to do our best to do so. And it's got to be tough to kind of 
yeah look go to every school and see how every school is doing it and how every classroom is taking it that, that that's got to be a, a tough task to kind of stay on top of and and see how everything's going mm-hmm. yeah i just i have one more question and i'm pretty sure we that's pretty much all of our questions but i was just wondering going back to when chris was talking about um asking students to leave the classroom um are they are teachers allowed to tell students that they can't wear their masks under their nose because that's been a thing i see a lot people wear them under their nose like are you allowed to tell them because i know like certain jobs even like at my part-time job we're not allowed to tell people to wear their masks you know that that's that's another great question i know that uh, again if i go back to public health their directive as well uh for businesses really before was you you can't force somebody to wear a mask I think they've tightened up a bit on that in the regulations. Um, and so for teachers too, I'm sure there's, um, their job really is to teach and, um, and you know, control behaviors within the classroom if, if required. So I, I suspect it's difficult for some of them to continually um, request that somebody wear a mask appropriately. So I think they need to focus on what's important and that's the teaching and the control of the classroom. And we're just hopeful that the rest would comply with wearing the mask appropriately. Yeah, awesome. I do agree with that. Well, thank you so much, Loe, for coming on. It was it was great having you on and you can and having you fill, fill us in and all the stuff going on with Blue Water and how you guys have been taking care of the COVID-19 stuff. So we really appreciate you coming on and uh, maybe sometime down the line we can have you back on for some some other kind of episode and uh but yeah thank you so much we really it was very helpful it. i feel like we learned a lot learned yes a lot. yes it would be nice to do a face-to-face at some point and if i could just compliment the two of you you do a fantastic job so thank you so much, you. much. <laughs> thanks well this is this is we love doing this and it's been so fun so far so i can't wait to talk to a bunch of other people around this area about really cool stuff so um yeah thank you so much Lori. Well, very professionally done. Kudos to both of you. Thank you so much. Okay, Lori Wather, ladies and gentlemen. Guys, that was such a good episode today. Very, very informational. Uh, I really loved interviewing these people today. Lori was really interesting to hear all the stuff about the school, some of which I never even considered, and I'm actually going back to school in person. And with Dr. Ara, being able to really talk to an actual doctor about COVID was yeah. really was really awesome. No, it was really cool to actually get a pro side of things of how it's actually going because we never really get to like, unless you're watching the news every day, you don't really see like medical medical officers' um, actual opinions on everything going on. So it's good to kind of get it straight from the source and, you know, get the actual facts that people don't really talk about because people just spread all kinds of bull on, on Facebook and everything that the, all, all these lies no Same. masks masks are fake masks don't do anything yeah but that cool. was crazy to hear today that it only like 10 to 11 percent it actually works yeah which sounds like what the heck are we doing why are we wearing yeah. masks but really on a global scale and even provincial that's so so amazing and that's so good it's so important so i want to thank them again for coming on and doing all the things they do uh, and have been doing since this COVID outbreak. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next episode, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Chris Hookstra. And I'm Brooklyn Dersom. And remember, stay hydrated and chase your dreams.